Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories in world news continues to be the situation in Syria and the Turkish offensive that started there. President Trump on Wednesday announced that the U.S. will lift sanctions on Turkey and also said that the ceasefire in northern Syria is now permanent. The safe zone in the area will now be enforced by Russia and Turkey. For more on this story, we spoke to Missy Ryan. She's a national security reporter at The Washington Post. What President Trump said was that he is going to lift some sanctions on Turkey, and he did not appear worried about the potential resurgence of the Islamic State after the Turkish offensive has sort of destabilized much of northern Syria. And so what President Trump did was take the recent events in Syria as a victory for the United States, facilitate an American military withdrawal, and as he described it, bringing peace to an area that has been very fraught for a long time. But obviously, a lot of the depictions laid out by President Trump in his address are questionable on the fact that the Syrian military and the Russian military are moving into areas that have been under Kurdish control for years now, and that Turkey has a potential to restart its military offensive in parts of northern Syria along its border. All serious questions about whether this is going to be even potentially depicted as a success in a week or so. As you mentioned, the president is claiming this as a total victory. He said no other country did this. It was us. It was all us. This might be one of the clearest pictures of the Trump America first doctrine that we've seen with regards to foreign policy. He even said it. We're not going to get involved where the United States doesn't have an interest and everybody else can kind of fend for themselves on this. What are we learning about that? This is, again, President Trump illustrating his view of the world, which is a little bit more or significantly more transactional and in terms of thinking, what is the U.S.? get from its military presence in Syria. And I think his view, his answer to that question was not a lot, so let's not continue it. And what he's talking about is let other people deal with this. And he hasn't been afraid to yield to situations that potentially are facilitating the risk of human rights issues or displacement or even greater marginalization of a particular ethnic community, which is something that very easily could occur in northern Syria. And so it really does help solidify, I think, the Trump worldview. These situations are always far more complicated. And for the president, he doesn't want to be there. And despite ditching our allies there, the Kurds who helped us in the fight against ISIS, he's ready to go. He even mentioned in his address on Wednesday that he spoke to General Mazloun and he said, oh, thank you very much. You know, we're happy with this deal. There was an interview that General Mazloun just did with Voice of America News on Monday saying that our trust in the United States is at its lowest point than it's ever been. I think that the Syrian Kurds are put in a difficult position because they at once want to articulate their disappointment and their frustration with the way things have played out and, you know, acknowledge that there was never an explicit promise from the United States to protect them against any Turkish invasion, but also maintain some relationship with what has been for them a very powerful ally in the hopes that that can benefit them again in the future. From the beginning, this whole thing has had many back and forths. We were pulling troops out, then we were leaving some in, then we were actually were taking them out and the troops are moving to Iraq. But 
they can't stay there. I think they've only they're only allowed to be there for another four weeks. From the beginning, Republicans and Democrats have not been on the president's side with this. Is there something that they're seeing that the president is not or vice versa? I mean, I think, again, the critics in Congress would be looking at three things that most critics are pointing to in terms of the potential national security cost to the way this is playing out in northern Syria. The first is the most direct, the potential resurgence of the Islamic State as you have people escaping from prisons or you have the potential for areas of poor or absent governance could give rise to militants be more active. You also have the potential for this, and I think we're already seeing this out, the potential for this discouraging local groups, non-state actors, and also states from partnering with the United States because the idea is that they see the United States selling out an ally. So wouldn't they do the same to us? And the third potential cost is the fact that this really has strengthened Russia's role and the Syrian government's role in this part of the world and allowed them to dictate events. And, you know, they both have terrible human rights records in Syria, and there's no reason to think that they will change their ways of doing things right now. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Next, we have an interesting story about the latest parental obsession. For parents with kids in school, they might already be aware that many middle and high schools offer online grade books where the status of quizzes, homework, and overall grades can be monitored. And now parents are checking in on these grades as if there was their social media, looking for every little update. For more on this story, we spoke to Julie Jargon. She's the family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal. For more on how this steady stream of tests and homework scores is too tempting for some parents. A lot of school districts across the country are actually requiring teachers to input kids' grades on every assignment and test into an online gradebook that the parents and the students can both access. It's not exactly real-time. You know, it depends on when the teacher has the ability to finish grading and inputting all the assignments. But the idea is that parents can see these grades, and if there's a problem, they can nip it in the bud early on. But what it's doing is actually, in many cases, causing a lot of anxiety where there may not necessarily need to be any. I spoke to some parents who say they feel compelled because it's right there at their fingertips to check this information constantly. And sometimes if a teacher hasn't yet put in a test score or graded an assignment, it can look like the child is failing the class. And so a parent right, might yeah. <laughs> a parent might confront their student and say, oh my gosh, it looks like you're failing high school chemistry. What's going on? And there's a reasonable explanation for why it may look that way. How do teachers feel about this whole thing? Teachers find it a mixed blessing because on the one hand, it can reduce the amount of communication they have to do with parents directly because the parents have that information so readily available that they don't always have to email parents or pick up the phone if there's a problem because a lot of the parents are just on it already. But on the flip side, I talked to one teacher who said, you know, it really takes kind of the bigger picture out of the whole process that parents and students alike can become so focused on the grades that they really lose sight of the bigger picture here. They start looking at it as grades to get that letter grade and the importance of that versus, you know, you might bomb a test here and there. You might do better or worse on a particular assignment. But in the end, it's all about developing the skills that you need to learn a particular subject. Talk to us a little bit about some of these companies. I know you mentioned Jupiter Education Inc. I think there was another one called PowerSchool. These are some of the companies that are putting out these online grade books. 
They also allow parents to do other things like track their kid's attendance, see if their kid is tardy, look for assignments and see if there are missing assignments. And those are all helpful things that parents can say, hey, you've got a math project or science project coming up and kind of provide their kids with some reminders. But they both provide the online grades. In some cases, the schools can set it up so that parents not only have access to the portal where they can go at their own leisure and check, but they can receive text notifications, more email alerts when a new grade has been added. So that just kind of ups the ante there in terms of the parental anxiety, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, a new grade has been added. Of course, you're, right. you know, if you're like me, you're not going to wait and look at it later. You're going to look at it right away, especially if you have concern about your student having a bad test score on something. But there are quite a few companies out there that are making these apps and websites for parents. And some of the numbers behind this are pretty amazing. I think Jupiter individually, they have a grade book that's used to track the grades of 4 million students worldwide. That's a lot. But they also said that 50% of families with access to this never log on. And this just seems like it's the case, you know, in general, if we had this or not, there are those parents who are a little lax on nailing their kids down to schoolwork. And then there's those parents that go into overdrive. Some of these people that would log on every day, they said 14% log on at least once a day. So these are the parents that are looking for these daily updates, minute by minute updates, whenever you get some type of notification. There's definitely a subset of the very vigilant parents who do log on and they go all in. I was surprised to hear that half of the families that do have access don't, though, take advantage of that for good or for bad. And, and that's the question of where part of the intent of these apps is to get more parents involved in their kids' schoolwork and to get them more engaged with the teachers and know what's going on in the classroom and with their kids' homework and everything. And apparently that's not happening. And I talked to someone at Jupiter who said there will always be those parents who are uber vigilant and they will be that way whether they have access to their kids grades or not and then there will always be those parents who aren't paying attention and having an app at their fingertips is not going to make them pay attention it just seems like this puts a lot more pressure on the students in speaking to parents and teachers how do they feel about that a lot of the teachers I spoke to said that that can create anxiety in the students because they themselves, the students themselves, have access and are often checking it maybe as frequently, if not more frequently, than their parents because they're worried about their grades. They might also want to be getting ahead of their parents and anticipating what the conversation is going to be like when excuse. they get home. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they know that they can't just hide it or they can't wait until they've you know made up an assignment or performed better on the next test to have that conversation with their parents because their parents have that data now. And so they have to be ready to be held accountable for it in the case of those parents who are being super vigilant with the app. So yeah, I think it puts a lot of pressure on kids. And you know, I can see why parents would feel compelled to take a look at this. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A crazy story developing this week coming out of Illinois. A nine-year-old boy is facing five counts of murder and arson charges stemming from a fire he started back in April. At his arraignment earlier this week, the judge had to slow things down multiple times to help the boy understand the charges against him. The boy did not know what alleged or arson meant. The boy is too young to go to jail, but if convicted, he could be put on probation for five years and sent to a detention center if that is violated. For all the details of this story, we spoke to Phil Luciano. He's a reporter for the Peoria Journal Star, who was in the courtroom for the boys and Raymond and tells us exactly what he saw. This was so starkly different because of the age of this kid, that he's nine years old. And it's, it's kind of, I, I don't know, I kind of forget sometimes. My kids are older now, so I forget how small a nine-year-old is. This kid's like five foot tall, 50 pounds. I mean, just a, 
a little kid, yeah. you know, and and he's he's taken into the court with his guardian, one of his grandparents, and you're just, and it's just kind of like all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of this stunning sight, and I, I realize what he's alleged to have done. He's done, alleged to have set a fire that killed five people, five persons in his family but still when you see a little kid going into court and you know there's the judge the bailiff the cops 12 reporters some of them national um all sorts you know court officials uh child welfare workers the prosecutor his his public defender and then there's this little kid in the middle of it and i'm not saying he shouldn't be there should be there. i'm just saying it was just something you don't see every day right And, and really that's what kind of piques everybody's interest you hear this and you think you hear the headline a nine-year-old is facing five counts of murder you know he didn't even know what alleged meant you know he's had to ask stop through the proceedings to ask uh, you know or his lawyer had to stop and say hold on a second uh you know uh sir the he doesn't understand what alleged means and the judge would have to explain it to him uh what happened with that regards well you know what it was like and it may be this this will help help uh people understand uh, i don't know if, if if you have kids my like i said my kids are older but when you have a kid and that kid is like in that area of 9 10 11 and they kind of know right from wrong and they some things they don't or they understand some things and you start to lecture them about stuff and you're like do you understand do you understand and they're like yeah yeah and yeah. then you talk to them later and they're like uh what were you talking about and it was kind of like that and the judge was really nice i'm not saying he was stern the judge was very very slow and deliberate and uh, kind of smiley and trying to get him through this. And the kids, and you can just tell the kids saying, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. And then all of a sudden he asked for a definition of something that the judge talked about five minutes ago. Wow. And so, you know, the kid doesn't really know what's going on. And it, it, it's just, it's just in the end, it's, it's, I don't know what you do, what you what you, what, what is right to do in this case. I mean, He's not going to go to prison. He's not going to go to jail. He's not even, because of Illinois law, he's not going to even go to a juvenile detention center. He's going to be put on probation. At the same time, it's just like, wow, is this sad? The judge here is Judge Charles Feeney. And at one point, I guess he asked the boy uh, at the beginning of the arraignment, really, he said, what don't you understand? And, And the boy replied even what I did. You know, he doesn't even really understand really the severity of it all, maybe, or just how the totality of the whole thing. Uh, okay, so uh, let's go back a little bit, Phil, and and talk about what started this whole thing. Uh, you you had a chance to even talk to uh, some of the family members that were involved in all this. So this dates back to April and a fire that was started uh, that killed, as you mentioned, five family members. Right, it was in a uh, trailer park in, uh, near Peoria, and it was just a tragic situation. These uh, these there there were uh, I think six. Seven people were in the trailer, and uh, six of them lived there, and one of them was a little kid who was visiting. And most there were there were there were four little kids, two two uh, adults like middle middle aged type or in their twenties, and then a grandmother. And then all of a sudden, there's this fire that's racing through the place, and the mom of the boy who's now accused gets out. He gets out. And the rest die, and literally, and this is what you know. We, we you know here it's been such a, a big deal. The case, the the man who is he's it's kind of a blended family situation. He's the father of one of the two of the children, and 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 you know, uh, guardian of another, that sort of thing. And he's like yelling for these kids. He's yelling their names out loud, you know, to, calling for them. And then and there's no answer. And then you hear nothing. 
and it's just it's just a horrible situation and it's just everyone's heart went out to this family and, and still does of course i mean it's quite the loss regardless of who caused their deaths um but one thing here in here in this area that maybe the 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 vantage of this entire scenario might be a little different than the national scenario is it wasn't like this fire happened last week and the kid was picked up a few days later this happened back in april and it was it was it was determined to be an arson homicide like 10 days afterward it's just that the child wasn't charged until about 10 days ago yeah. uh, earlier this month you know so it's been this situation that around here people have been like wow that's awful and whatever happens awful and now it's now the child is going into the system and it's so i think people here are, are kind of like how you've been talking to say you know wow this is really sad at, at the same time to be fair it's like well what do you do i mean what whatever happened at this child with this fire something went awry you know that that you know I, may, may, maybe it was a one-off thing Right. Maybe it was not. It's it's hard hard to tell. But how obviously the child's going to need some sort of help. Is it best that you you take them into the system this way? Is there another way? I really don't know. Yeah, and that's really one of the big questions. There's been a lot of gag orders placed on this whole thing. Uh, you know, family members aren't allowed to talk about it. A lot of the details. I mean, the big questions are: How did the fire all start? And why did they pin it on him? I think the the mother has said that, you know, he was maybe responsible for it, but we don't know the details about it. And, uh, you know, you were telling the story about how, uh, you know, uh, the mother's uh, soon-to-be husband at the time went back in to the trailer to go rescue the other kids. And then you hear silence after a while. They, I think a lot of them died of smoke inhalation. And, um, you know, just how fast the thing moved, the, the, the furnace exploded, you know, he, she even said, you know, he's a hero for going back in there, but we don't know a lot of these details yet and why specifically they did charge, uh, this young nine-year-old boy with all of this. There's been divisions within the family. Even, um, one of the children that died was one of the little boy's cousins and, and his aunt says, you know, he needs to be punished. He needs to go through juvie and in prison after. So, I mean, this is this is going to be something that's going to be kind of analyzed and talked about for many years to come. And one of the things, and I want to make sure I choose my words very, very carefully when I say the following. I think a lot of times, you know, people people look at a case and they they kind of put themselves in those shoes. And the part that's hard is maybe not everyone involved and who is close to this child is functioning at a level that would make sure he would get all the services he would need. If, if you can read yeah. through that. <laughs> and, and so that's uh, I feel comfortable saying that, that maybe right. there, there might need to be some oversight from outside the family to make sure he does go through the, the proper channel. So, yeah. I mean, in the meantime, it, it really is a, a heartbreaking story. And, and as I mentioned, you know, there's going to be a lot more stuff the next Court hearing, I think, is uh, sometime in November, just before Thanksgiving. So we'll see what develops there, and uh, we'll definitely try to follow this story. Phil Luciano, reporter with the Peoria Journal Star, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.